into Lonely Town, a killer's podcast with Jimmy and Derek. We're not going to waste any time this week. We got another great guest. We've just been lining him up left and right. And we have Joe Stetler with us, who uh, it was a special drummer from the audience a few shows back with the killers. Uh, he's a third grade teacher uh, from Fresno, California. Uh, Joe, welcome into the show, and we're happy to have you on Lonely Town. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited. So your show was on uh, August 27th in Los Angeles, is that correct? That's right. So we're just a little bit more than a month out from that. One of the ways that we came to know of your story is because of the Rich Eisen show, who he talked about the experience going to the concert with his wife. And then on a, a few days later, he had you on a, in an interview and we got to hear a lot about your story. So I'll link to that in our show notes uh, so people can go and hear your story, but um, you know, we, we, we'd love to have you talk about your story and, and we'll ask you a few other questions maybe you weren't able to get into on, on the Rich Asian show, but maybe we can just start by talking about the lead up to the concert. I understand that you were a drummer in a band years ago and that's how you met your wife. What can you tell us about your drumming experience and about the band you used to play in? Well, I, I originally joined like marching band back in, well, before marching band, I joined like junior high band. Cause I knew that I'd want to go to the high school football games, um, <laughs> but I, I didn't want to pay for them. And I wanted to have people that were supposed to, you know, be with me there. Uh, so it's like built in game friends and I didn't have to pay. I had a parking spot. So I joined drumline. And um, during that time, I was just like one of those kids that was always in a band Um and in fact, I picked up guitar at one point because all my friends were drummers and uh, went through high school like that was my my group was all my all my band friends. Um, so then college, I played in a band, uh, played drums and I was on tour with my bandmates and met my wife, who this was in uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California, and she was there and she, being a drummer herself, she was one of the like only people that could pick me out of a crowd because I mean, the the joke is nobody recognizes the drummer in like small time bands because we mind our own business in the back and people would recognize the band and want to take a picture with them. And I'd be the guy they gave the camera to. Uh, <laughs> but my wife was there. She knew who I was and didn't give a crap about that. And that was really alluring to me so that's that's the beginning of our story after college i didn't read really... it a little bit further than most bands though it sounds like if you went on tour uh what was the name of your band oh gosh so this is <laughs> here's the mind. thing in that <laughs> i i describe this as being like another lifetime on another planet because at that time in my life in college i was i was going to bible college in missouri um because i wanted to be a youth pastor and so at that time we were traveling like for our college and we were playing at like events around the country. Okay. And so it was, it was, you know, like a, I don't want to say a church band, but it was a, it was like a church band. And 
Uh, so that that helped me meet a lot of people and a lot of different kinds of people. And I really value that experience. My bandmates from back then are still my best friends in the whole world. And um, in fact, I texted a lot of those dudes from the pit at the killer show, you know, just as quickly as I could with my trembling hands, be like, dudes, I just played drums with the killers. And uh, so like, I'm so close with them. But I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm third grade teacher now. I'm decidedly not a pastor. I'm I uh, and that's that's a whole other probably whole other podcast conversation. Maybe we'll get into it. But so I was traveling around with that band. Yeah. So we were playing there at this youth conference. And that's where I met my wife and we got married a few years later. And ever since then, I, I, I never really played with bands anymore. It was just not really something I felt I needed to do. And I kind of lurked around Craigslist for a while, watching for local bands to pop up, but nothing really caught my attention. And so drumming is just like, it's just a hobby. We do like my wife still drums. I do. And, you know, it's funny. Every concert I go to, I still go there with the intention of stepping in for the drummer. Like, (laughs) like you remember the movie Spinal Tap? Yeah. So like, you know, if you've seen that movie, you know that drummers will spontaneously combust and they need another one. And <laughs> so, like, I'll be happy to step in. And it's just always kind of been a dream, like that something happens and they need, you know, it's like um, that Mark Wahlberg movie, Rockstar. And my wife has always joked with me about that. And then, like, earlier this year, um, that kid came and played with Pearl Jam. And my wife is the one who like broke the news. And like, I say broke the news because she knew I'd just be like, Oh, come on. <laughs> and, but like seeing that happen just brings so much joy to me. Like when people get to do that, you know, bands like green day do it all the time. And I was not aware. Cause I'd never been to a killer show. I didn't know they did that. And I don't spend a lot of time on YouTube. And so my wife, unbeknownst to me, was working in cahoots with my running friends um, down in LA and they were just kind of planting these subliminal seeds um, to make me think that this was going to be my idea. And I wanted to play (laughs) drums with the killers. And so they're always like texting me content and being like, Hey, look, this girl from Europe is playing drums with the killers. And and I was like, well, wait a second. I know that song. I could play that song. (laughs) And I just kind of spent my summer you know, gearing up like it was going to happen. And um, I have a friend who has a a small connection with Ronnie. And so I knew we'd be able to get tickets. And um, I had actually met Ronnie once before um, through this friend. His This friend's name is Jordan. He works for the, the city of Monterey. And Ronnie had asked through his manager, asked for a tour of a museum in Monterey that my friend is a uh, an artifact specialist for. Yeah. Um, and if you live in California, you know Monterey is a, a hot spot of California history. And so Jordan had this thing set up with Ronnie where he was going to tour um, Pacific Biological Laboratories is the, the museum. And it's a, a place that is uh, referred to in the John Steinbeck novel, Cannery Row. Uh Um, and a fictitious character in that book, Doc, is based on the real person, Ed Ricketts, who had this lab in California. And 
I mean, long story short, Ed Ricketts was responsible for like every oceanic specimen that was sent to universities far and wide back in the um, back in the day when it was a functioning laboratory. Mm -hmm. So lots of California history there. And uh, Ronnie has a home nearby and he wanted a tour of the place. They give tours pretty regularly. So my friend Jordan was like, um, okay, but my friend Joel is a, is a killers fan <laughs> and he, he's a big fan of Ronnie's. Um, is it okay if, if, if I include him in this and, um, they were like, yeah, sure. So I was there under the, um, uh, I had been told that Jordan needed help moving some artifacts and there was this guy who was going to show up delivering artifacts and Ronnie showed up. And I didn't really know it was him because we were all wearing masks because it was still that oh, time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, with a mask on, Ronnie just looks like another dude. Like, <laughs> actually, it was a bandana. So he looked like he was going to rob a train. But, um, <laughs> you know, very friendly. Um, and uh, finally, Jordan's like, OK, I have to explain. Ronnie, this is my friend, Joel. He's a big Killers fan. Joel, this is Ronnie from the Killers. <laughs> and so we ended up, I mean, we still did the tour and everything and it was really interesting and fun. And uh, we snapped some photos with Ronnie, but while we were there, Ronnie talked about how excited he was to be in this lab because of the book Cannery Row. We bonded over our shared love of whiskey. And, you know, there's a, there's a whiskey in that book called old tennis shoes is that old Tennessee, but they called it old tennis shoes. And, um, so we we talked about that and um you know this place was the the birthplace of the Monterey Jazz Festival so Ronnie was just as starstruck as I was to be there um with all the the music history so that was the one time I had actually met Ronnie and I mean he wouldn't probably have remembered my name or anything like that um but uh I certainly remembered it and so leading up to the killer show um in August Jordan had secured some tickets from Ronnie um, and uh, I had my LA running friends who were going to be there. Um, so we were all set to go and people ask, you know, is this stuff with, you know, fans drumming with the killers? Is that all set up ahead of time? Is it, is it fake? And time and time again, the, the drummers who are interviewed are like, no, I had no idea whether it was going to happen until it happened. And it was kind of the same way for me. Like I never, you know, Jordan did try to float, you know, the, <laughs> the idea to Ronnie, um, be like, Hey, you know, my friend that you met, he has cancer and he's a big fan. He's a great drummer, you know, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And Ronnie, you know, keeping the integrity of the shtick was like, yeah, you know, that sounds great. But just so you know, we do decide whether or not to do it in the moment. And you know, so he, he didn't make any promises and I, I actually respected that. And, um, and of course I didn't know about this until after it all happened. And my wife showed me all the text messages that Jordan had shared with her. Um, I was left in the dark that way, but, um, yeah. And before the show started, since Jordan was, you know, Ronnie's friend, um, he had, you know, some backstage passes, and so while my wife and I were holding our place in the pit, um, Jordan was just going on his own little field trip backstage <laughs> as backstage passes do sending me photos of, you know, 
tour cases and people who look important and things like that. <laughs> um, and he did get a chance to sit down briefly with Ronnie ahead of time and thank him for the tickets. And again, he asked Ronnie like, Hey, my friend's got this big blue sign, you know, keep an eye out and <laughs> like, okay, well, it's not on the set list, but I'll talk to Brandon, you know, and no promises. Somebody else might be there wanting to play too. Um, and so at this point I had already made peace with the possibility of it not happening. Um, and I was just ready to have a good time. Uh, the show started, um, some guy totally on drugs started swinging elbows. Um, and you probably heard, um, that, um, Brandon had him thrown out. Um, that was right where we were standing. Actually, my wife caught an elbow to the face. Um, and I was like, well, they're definitely not letting some random (laughs) drama come up now. Um, but it was, I was just really impressed. Like everyone in the pit knew exactly what to do. Like fingers went up pointing to where the trouble was security and police came out of freaking nowhere. And, um, it was handled. The funny thing about that whole experience, you know, once we made sure everyone in our area was fine, um, my friend Jordan was and and um, our other buddy Nick were still backstage on their little field <laughs> trip, and you know everyone in the arena or in the stadium, you know they they saw what happened. We all bonded over that little experience. Jordan had no idea, and he texts us a picture of a dude handcuffed to a gurney. Uh, <laughs> he's like, "Dude, some crazy guy is getting arrested back here," <laughs> and we're like, "Yeah, we saw. He hit us." And uh, <laughs> He's like, what? And I was like, come to the concert, buddy. Like, you're here. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the show went on. It was just a great sing-along. And I had my sign. Um, and I I did not want to be that dude that that ruined it for everyone behind him. Because I'm already kind of tall. Um, so I'm really self-conscious when I'm near the front at a concert. Um, so I only held a sign up in between songs. I had friends that had smaller signs with arrows pointing to mine um and as the night went on people around us would then shine their cell phone lights on my sign in between songs when it was dark so i knew they were seeing and there were a couple times where like you know you'd see brandon just kind of pause and look and a couple times i even shouted i was like i saw you read that and (laughs) um but you know he he played his part and he kept the show moving and I knew from the previous, you know, five or six nights that they had not done the song. So we got, you know, two thirds of the way through their set and I was kind of losing my steam. Um, But my friends kept telling me, put it up, put it up. And then like it, it freaking happened and he, (laughs) he stopped. And that's when my heart went into my shoes Um, and my feet left the ground and people just pushed me forward. And like, you can see in some of the videos, even like I'm, I'm bewildered, um, that it's even happening. And then I have to climb over the thing, uh, the rail. And luckily my, my big, strong friend Gabe was with me and just kind of threw me over (laughs) and they took me around back of the stage. And the weirdest thing that I didn't expect to see back there was all the children that were back there. It was like there was a field trip or something, (laughs) Uh, which I mean, you know, 
I'm, I figure it's, you know, band and crew family, um, hanging out back there, but they were just as bewildered as I was. They're like, who's this guy? (laughs) And, And then I find myself behind the drums. Ronnie's shaking my hand, giving me some sticks and saying, I'll cue you in getting on the drums was surreal. I, it was like, like walking on the moon, like, cause the crowd was, it was just all black, just lights on the stage. You can smell the fog. Like I'm never, I'm always going to think of this when I smell fog now, like <laughs> fake fog. And it, it's a weird sensory experience up there because you've got this big stage and we were outdoors, but when we started playing, you know, Ronnie uses in-ears. So the only sound I had to go off, it was like ambient stage sound and sound coming from like Brandon's monitors. Uh Um, But then the rest was just all drums. And it was like, I was in a big room up there. Like I could hear the the echoes back to myself. And I really tried to um, like download the experience to my brain. Like I, (laughs) I remember like feeling the drum heads and with my hands during the breaks. And I remember just trying to log the smells and what everything looked like um, because I knew this was a, a precious memory. I didn't want to let go of. Wow. Yeah, definitely. How close were you to the state? Yeah. To, in the pit, how close were you? Well, we got there about, we got to the, the floor entrance. Like I think it's like two hours early before doors. There are a couple hundred people in front of us and I'd say, I mean, if, if we can call it rows of people, we were probably about 10 rows back. Close enough to have hope, but far enough back that my wife pretty much couldn't see anything. Oh. Um, but when, when I got to play, everyone pushed her forward to the front for that song, which oh, cool. was oh, nice. really appreciated that. After she got that elbow to the face, was she? I mean, she was all right, obviously able to go on with the show. Yeah, like no bruise, nothing like that. But it, I mean, it, it sent her to the ground. And, um, when that happened, like priority one was like, get everybody back on their feet. Cause a few people got knocked down and there was a moment where I was like, where's my wife? Cause I mean, he sent her flying and the whole crowd, I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, water settling. Um, everyone just sort of mixed up. And this was not like, my first thought was like, is this dude lost? Cause like, this isn't, this isn't Metallica. Like we're, we're not doing that up here. Um, like right actions wrong show you know yeah um and and, like nobody was having any of it it just wasn't that that kind of show Mm -hmm. so yeah by the time i mean it it only took a a couple more songs and we were all singing and dancing together anyway so we all moved on but yeah when we were listening to the music in the car after the show i mean it's like yeah skip jenny was a friend we're not we're not listening to that song anymore (laughs) yeah you uh you definitely had passion on the videos and stuff that will link i mean uh, you were definitely in the moment and you're very passionate up there on the drum set. Is that uh, just the moment of being on stage with the killers or is that just how you play? I mean, I don't play like that when I'm alone in my dining room with my <laughs> drums, but I I remember being told by people I was really animated like to watch while I played. And I remember I was reading um, Travis Barker's autobiography from a few years ago. Uh-huh. And he talked about that, how he worked really hard to like be fun to watch and I remember like watching other drummers and being really disappointed. I'm like, dude, you're, you had your opportunity to like be fun and you're not fun to watch. And so like, that's, that's just always kind of been my, I don't know, ethos too, is to, 
Like if I'm going to take your time by making you watch me play, I want you to be glad that you did at least a little bit. So when did you get into the killers? We kind of jumped ahead to the concert and stuff. Have you been a fan from, from the beginning? Did you jump in the last few years? When, when did that all start? Well, so when I was in college, I was a waiter at um, this Tex-Mex restaurant in Joplin, Missouri. And um, when we'd close, they'd turn off the, you know, the, the salsa Tex-Mex <laughs> loop and just play, you know, top 40 or whatever on the radio, especially like back in the kitchen. Like I'd always go to the kitchen guys to, to figure out what's current. <laughs> and Mr. Brightside was on the radio and I was like, guys, what am I hearing? And they told me and the first chance I got, I went to the mall, bought the CD and immediately like Ronnie became just kind of a permanent resource for like inspiration. I, I learned certain drum fills, you know, so a lot of what I did, he, he was on a very short list of drummers where I just kind of always look to what they're doing to see what's sounding good and what's creative and, you know, copy worthy. And in fact, um, when I played the song um, at the concert, I threw in one of his fills from another song. <laughs> when you were young, uh-huh. there's this sick drum fill he uses toward the end of the bridge. And I threw that in toward the end of the Reasons Unknown bridge. And I looked right at him when he did it, hoping he'd notice like that's from the other song. But it, it's been one of my go-to fills for 20 years. Um <laughs> ever since uh samstown came out yeah so yeah mr brightside is what hooked me and like kind of at that stage in life i was i was really into listening to bands where the singer was not normal to listen to like um the format or um hot hot heat where it was just like this is not this is not how people usually sing but they have found their sound Cause I, that's just kind of Brandon kind of scratched that itch for me. The way he sang was um, different and he freaking nailed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always appreciated that. And as far as Ronnie was concerned, I could tell he was incredible, but what I appreciated was he wasn't being, com- he wasn't being incredible at every moment. Cause he's not, he's not a showboater. He, he, he makes artistic decisions for each and every bar. And that's something I was really excited to point out to him when I met him that day in um, Ed Ricketts lab Um, was to tell me like, I can tell you, you care about every stroke on every drum and every symbol you're making calculated decisions and you're not just showing us what you've got at every moment. And um, he's like, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And so that, that's kind of why they hooked me. Um, I've never been the type to like learn every word of a song, but it's just like, I'll sit there and appreciate the decisions they made when they wrote and recorded these songs. Yeah. So one of the, my favorite parts of when you got up on stage was, I think you said in your other interview, you looked at your wife and mouthed the words, Oh my gosh, (laughs) you have this big wide eyed look on your face. It's like, this is really happening. What do you remember from that moment? That was definitely kind of the spirit of that. I was just like, oh, my gosh. But like in that moment, and I think she could tell I was talking about the drums themselves and just how beautiful they were. (laughs) And 
because I sat down, I was like, man, these things are nice. Like, <laughs> but especially his symbols were just like, it was like art. And when I finally got to lay into everything and play, it was like, it was like butter. Everything was just smooth and it, it, everything just worked. And I can't imagine getting to play on something like that day in and day out. So that was one of those things I soaked in. Like this is special. I may never get to play drums or symbols like this ever again. Well, yeah, you definitely took advantage of the moment. It looked like, um, <laughs> So you're you're up in Fresno, and for the people that don't know, uh, we got a lot of people overseas and and uh, in the United Kingdom. Fresno is quite a ways from LA. Uh, how far in advance were you were you planning this? Did you make the the sign when you got there? Or did you travel with it? Uh, no, kind of the, the I I made the sign a, a few weeks ahead of time because this was the first weekend right after school started, so I knew that I wouldn't have the time to make a sign in that week. Um, I knew that mentally as most teachers are, I was spent after that first week of school. Um, so I planned ahead and had it made and I painted on it, you know, fighting cancer and ready to play drums on reasons and just kind of had it all ready to go. Cause I I'm pretty worthless after the first week of school. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, I was ready. Um, you brought it up a couple times, and we don't need to dive into it if it's too personal, but uh, you do have the Fighting Cancer shirt and sign. How's that battle been going? How are you doing with that? Well, so I have a, a really rare cancer. It's a form of sarcoma, and sarcoma makes up less, just less than 1% of all adult cancers, and there are more than 50 subtypes of sarcoma, and I have one of those. It started in my leg. It's a, it's a soft tissue cancer. And so it started in my leg and I was actually misdiagnosed about 12 years ago. And so they missed it. And five years later, um, I had my leg checked out again. Uh, cause I was like, there's something wrong here. And that's when I got my stage four diagnosis, which if you're unfamiliar with cancer, um, stage four, just simply put means it's, it's moved. It's metastasized to another part. Um, and it had moved to my lungs and after subsequent lung surgery, we found that it's pretty much coating my lungs, um, like sandpaper, just tiny, tiny disease. And then I, I do have the bigger tumors where when we get, um, CT scans and, um, MRIs, my, the imaging looks like a bag of golf balls, my lungs. And so that's just kind of an ongoing thing. There's no, there's no treatment for my cancer. So I do a lot of clinical trials and I have right now a treatment that I'm on is actually approved for kidney cancer. So that's just kind of been, been the ride for me, which is why I'm so out front trying to advocate for rare cancer research because like I had my wife and kids with me when they diagnosed me, we were at the doctor and um, it's just not a thing a person should have to experience being like, if you're going to be told you have a disease, I just feel like, man, it's, it's 2022. We should, we should have something. We shouldn't be told that there's no treatment. And luckily I have found specialists that are really, adventurous in their um, 
in their care. And, you know, while other doctors would throw their hands up and say, sorry, we don't have any data. We can't, we don't have a treatment for you. The doctors I have through Stanford and UCLA, CU Denver, um, their attitude has been much more like, well, let's make some data. Let's, mm -hmm. let's help you and help other people in the process. Um, so I try to put it out there that, you know, this is what a cancer patient can look like. Um, since I'm not on the IV um, chemotherapy, you know, I get to enjoy a head of hair a little bit and a beard. Um, but you just, the whole thing is you, you never know who's, who's in the fight. And statistically, I knew that that night in LA, um, there would be many people who are in the fight or who love somebody that's in the fight. And I just like to be one of those people that you'll know, give somebody a reason to be hopeful. Like, Hey, you can still do exciting things and fun things and things you love even from within the fight. So like right now I teach third grade and that, that gives me life. I love teaching. Um, I love writing and um, I love playing drums. There, there are so many things that I love to do that are still within my control. Um, even though like, as we speak, I've got about three liters of fluid in my lungs and I need to go to the hospital next week and have a, a surgical procedure done to get rid of all that fluid. And that's just kind of a weekly reality for me is like, I get winded walking across campus. Now um, I used to run marathons and ultra marathons and, and lately that's not my reality, but that doesn't mean I can't live a life that I feel good about and that my kids can model themselves after and, and so on. Yeah, it's definitely inspirational. I don't think anyone who uh, hasn't had their life affected in some way or form, unfortunately with cancer, uh, whether it's, yeah, like you're saying themselves or a loved one. Uh, is there anything our listeners or uh, anyone that hears this can do as far as uh, foundations or helping out or, or any, any causes that you support or things they could do to, to help that battle? Yeah. Well, I, I would say, um, Find someone who's willing to be your squeaky wheel because they say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. For me, that's my wife and many of my friends. And my wife is the one who has scoured the Internet for me because I don't think it's safe for a cancer patient to go on Google. You know what I mean? Um, but to have somebody who can look for those foundations and organizations that will help you. So for me with sarcoma, we, uh, my wife would search for sarcoma foundations, assisting with travel and, and so on. Um, because whatever you've been diagnosed with cancer or not, I'm, I'm confident that there are organizations out there that would are, are ready and excited to help with things like medical travel. Cause for me, I have a rare cancer, which means if I need a specialist, it's not going to be in Fresno. Um, so every eight to 12 weeks, I travel to Stanford in Palo Alto. Um, and there's organizations that help with that. There's an organization called Wendy Walk, where they they help advocate for people and finding, I, I mean, among other things, they help people secure funds to seek a second opinion. Um, and I'd say fight for that. With any diagnosis or non-diagnosis, find a second opinion, always. Um there's an organization called Move for Gen. They they help um, secure grants for 
sarcoma patients who have had um, limbs amputated, um, they find athletic prosthetics so that they can go be active still. Um, in fact, this last spring I ran with my wife in Waco, Texas, the silo district marathon. Yeah. Um, but the day before that we ran a 5k with our good friend, Marissa, who is a sarcoma patient and, um, leg amputee. And she ran the 5k with us with her athletic blade, um, from move for Jen. And so we love doing things with move for Jen, um, because it's, it's a terrible, ugly disease, but there are beautiful organizations out there that bring life to people who think they've lost it. And I, I'm always involved with um, Brave Like Gabe. They're an organization that secures grants and funding for rare cancer research in the, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, they give grants to doctors who are, are trying to eliminate those doctor's visits where they say, you have cancer, but we got nothing for you. So I'm always excited to support Brave Like Gabe. Their CEO, Justin Grunwald, who is the husband of the late Gabrielle Grunwald, the namesake of the organization. Um, Justin is a good friend of ours and a constant source of inspiration and hope. He's an ultra runner um, himself and a doctor and a good friend to our family. Um, And so, but I'd say for any patient, new or otherwise, don't allow yourself to be alone because it doesn't have to be that way. Um, as rare as a diagnosis can get, there's somebody out there that wants desperately for you not to be alone in your fight, um, whether you're a patient or caregiver. That's great. Yeah. We'll link to those organizations in our, our show notes for the episode. I, some of the things I've heard you, or I've heard you say, or read about, read about what you've written is about since your diagnosis is it's helped you, I guess, expand the spectrum of your, of your vision. I guess, can you tell us how this experience with the killers has, has played into that spectrum? Oh yeah. Well, so I was just talking about Brave Like Gabe. And one of the things that Gabe Grunwald had said um, before she passed was that when, um, and I can't quote her directly off the top of my head, but, um, she had said, you know, when you carry a diagnosis like this, because she had a rare cancer too, it kind of brings you into the stage where you live life in technicolor. Um, and that's something that my wife and I, as soon as we heard that she had said that, it really hit home because the day we got diagnosed, everything was more intense good and bad. But since the good out there does get more vivid, that's all the more reason to grab onto it. And so my oncologist back in Denver, when I was a youth pastor, um, he knew because I told him I I was miserable in my job there. It wasn't a fit for me. It no longer aligned with my, my, my beliefs. And um, so he said, for your own health, man, grab onto what's going to give you life. And he said, what's that going to be? And I said, I've always wanted a public school classroom. Um, I knew that was it for me. And he said, then go do it. And he said, go do it in California. That's where all the best research is. Um, And so we did. And even though I live daily with a terminal illness, um, I I see and grab onto those opportunities that are life-giving. And so when my wife and my friends were like, dude, people play drums with the killers, I said, 
as will I. And yeah, just sort of behaved as though it, it could happen because it could happen and it happens for others. So why not me? And I set myself up for that night to where even if it didn't happen, I was going to have new friends there in the pit either way. And it was going to be a good night. Nice. Yeah. And as a result of that, like when the show ended, we had backstage passes. I was going to get to meet the band, but I met so many cancer patients and so many caregivers just there on the floor that night that we were a little bit late getting backstage. And um, I did get to meet Robbie and his family. Yeah. Um, the keyboard player. Yeah. yeah. And uh, which, I mean, what a cool dude. I, I was stoked to meet him. We didn't go any further than that because it was late and we were tired and hungry. And, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll see them again. You never know. But I cherish those those meetings with other patients where they say, oh, my gosh, my my story is so similar to yours or my dad's not here tonight and he has cancer. And, you know, connecting with people, it, it's, uh, again, an opportunity to realize you're not you're not in your fight alone and you never have to be. Any ways people can connect with you on social media that you'd like to share? So just the uh, the Hey, Mr. Stetler. Uh, with underscores in between on uh, Instagram is my main, my main thing, but also Twitter. Great. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and your story. It's, it's very inspirational and uh, we appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. Yeah, guys. Thank you so much. All right. I'm Joel Stetler, third grade teacher from Fresno, California. That's another episode down from Lonely Town. <laughs>